good to see everybody. Um, I actually have a, a little bit of an embarrassing confession to make to you guys this morning. I've always been extremely uncomfortable with all the talk about blood in the Old Testament and the blood sacrifices and it was just really gross to me, to the thought of what their life was like, living and smelling and seeing that all the time. And, I mean, if you want a real dinner party conversation buzz killer, just bring up the blood of goats and bulls and fatted calves and nobody knows what to say. It's, it's not pleasant conversation. It's not anything that we um, can even identify with. My dad, <clears throat> who is now enjoying the glories of Jesus in his presence, was quite a character. And he, um, he couldn't stand to talk about sex or to hear the word sex. Like, for him, he was very prudish. And, in fact, his name was Pruitt, and we called him Prudy Pruitt. <laughs> Um, but you, he never let us say pregnant. That to him was a gross, vulgar word. Um, we didn't talk about sex. It, as far as he was concerned, the storks really did bring the babies. Women were expecting. And I remember when my best friend um, was at my house, and she started talking about when her water broke. And my dad turned white as a sheet, got up and left the room, and talked about it for years afterwards how inappropriate and horrible that was that Beth brought up her water breaking in front of him. Well, that was kind of my uncomfortable level with the sacrifices and the blood and the rituals. It felt kind of like that must have felt to my dad. It feels, um, it's, it's just something that we, we don't like to talk about. I didn't. I'm confessing. You, you guys may have had it forever, but it was very uncomfortable for me. Um, so why the blood? Did we have a bloodthirsty God? He's, it sounds like pagan worship at first glance um, when you are first skimming through the Bible. In pagan worship, we know that they bring the blood to try to appease God, to try to do something that pleases him, to make him less mean. But the more you realize in Scripture that God's worship, God himself provides the sacrifice for man, and the sacrifice is himself. In paganism, the worshiper tries to impress God with something he's done. But in the worship of the God of the Bible, God impresses us. With his sacrifice, he woos and wows us with himself. And in paganism, they try to protect themselves against the onslaught of, a, of an angry God, the brutality of him. But in true God worship, we see that God himself protects, protects us by his steadfast love and his compassion. How, how do we know this? Because in the very beginning of the word... Um, when Adam and Eve chose to do their own thing and to live their own life and to live it apart from God, to turn their back on Him, they immediately realized that their access to God had been broken and that 
they no longer had communion with him. And in their shame and guilt, they tried to hide from him, not knowing what he was going to do, not knowing what to expect. And the Bible says that they made for themselves a covering so that they could hide from God. But when God came to them, he removed their um, pitiful covering that they had made for themselves, and he covered their shame. So that's the first glimpse we see of God initiating the covering and God initiating the relationship, God initiating what it takes to be restored to him and him covering our sin. God is covering their shame, and it's his initiative. He came to them. And from the very get-go, the very next story is about Cain and Abel uh, bringing a sacrifice to God. So the very, from the very get-go, we learn from that story that it was never about the sacrifices, right? It was about the heart of the one bringing the sacrifice. Um, Cain's, Cain's um, sacrifice was accepted because he... Um, I'm sorry, Abel's sacrifice was accepted because of his broken and contrite heart, because his faith in God, his devotion to God. And then we see the true nature of Cain's heart in that he came trying to impress God and trying to win God's favor because out of the jealousy of his heart, he killed his brother. Then we see quickly that um, when God um, does something really interesting, to Abraham, he, he takes the custom of the day and he cuts the animals in half and he says, I'm going to pass through the animals, not you, but me. And he's saying in that, that if I don't keep this covenant, may I myself be broken apart. May I myself be torn apart if I don't keep the covenant that I've uh, promised you. We know that God is torn apart later in some way, but in this he's saying, may I be destroyed if I don't keep my covenant to you. And then we have Isaac. Um, in Isaac's story, we learn that we have forfeited our right for life. That when we went, when we turned to live our own life and turned our back on God, we lost life. This is also a buzz killer at a dinner party. For, uh, <laughs> but without this understanding, it none of it makes sense. But that God owns everything. He owns us, and he has the right in our sin and in our uh, rebellion against him to take our life. But right at the point when God was teaching Abraham, all things belong to me, I have the right over all things, even life itself, he stops Abraham's hand as the knife was about to plunge into his son. And at that point, God is saying, It's not your son. It'll be my son that receives the the punishment for sin. It'll be my son that is on the altar for sin. And then um, as the the people um, of Israel watched that night that God judged Egypt, um, they were told, as you know the story, to... um, put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. And this is, um, this is where we understand a little bit more about it, what it means that because of the substitution for our sin, God 
passes over and forgives our sin. But that substitution had to be there. God says to them the same thing he would say if you had a dinner party tonight and you started talking about these things. God is saying the same thing then and now. And that is either you're with me with the blood of Christ covering you with this substitute for your sins or you're still dead in your sins. So that was the lesson there. So all sacrifice in Israel that came after that, the sacrifices that our passage is talking about today, all the sacrifices that God instituted for his people were just kind of a a continuation or an expansion of that Passover sacrifice that was done that night, continually teaching his people that there must be a substitute Someone must stand in the place of the worshiper. Someone must receive receive the, um, the punishment. Somebody must stand in your place, an atonement. Um, so God's merciful, um, so all along, God's mercifully provides the sacrifice for God's people, and his people humbly receive God's provision, trusting in his mercy. But still, why blood? That doesn't get me... It gets me a little closer, but why not flowers? You know, why does it have to be blood? Um, And here's where we get the secret code. Kind of like in a movie. Um, You know, I've got to do this. Hang on. I'm taking antihistamine, so there's... Um, at the beginning of Star Wars, 40 years ago, um, I remember the first opening scene and Princess Leia is putting the little CD thing in RTD2 and the hologram comes out. And at that point, you're, they are given the secret code to what's happening. They're told about the rebellion, and I don't even know who's, who are the, who's good or bad, the rebellion or whatever. But I just remember that that's where you got what's going on. You got the behind-the-scenes story of what they're in the middle of, like what's going on right now and, and what's happening. I remember thinking that hologram was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, like, we talked about that hologram forever, and now there are churches that have hologram pastors. But anyway, <laughs> it, was, it, it was very cool at the time. Um, but this is where we get the backstory. This is where you put the disc in, and you back up, and you see, why does it have to be blood? What is the deal with the blood? Um, when Jesus says, or when we have this beautiful, beautiful section in um, our passage um, that says that I, and I want to say it, well, I have it right here. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, and it is as it has been written in the scroll of the book. So what this is saying is, we read in First Peter You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Can we grasp that? Can we even imagine 
that before the foundation of the world, Christ himself said, I will be the ransom for their sins. I will be the sacrifice. It will be my blood. This helps us understand that um, our passage today, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Written in the scroll of the book means the same thing as before the foundation of the world. Um, So I drew this little diagram because it really, it helps me. Before the foundation of the world, before the fall, we have the triune God who is in perfect, beautiful relationship with each other. And in that perfect union and love and out of that love, when the world turned its back on God, when we decided that we wanted to do it our way and, and, and not God's way, there was this divine conversation that happened that we can't fathom. It was, it, was, it was all of history conversation between the Godhead. And in that conversation, God requires justice. He's holy. But in that conversation, rather than the justice that we deserve falling on us, Christ the Son says, I will put on the body. God himself says, I will put on the body of a man and I will be the one that then becomes the sacrifice. I'll become the one that covers, that atones, that receives the punishment instead of your people, instead of the people that you've given me. So, This is when it happened. You see? It happened before the foundation of the world. As soon as Jesus said it, it was done. Um, God's word is eternal. So the plan was eternal. And so before any of this ever happened, it was already done. In the matter of, in, in time, in the fullness of time. So here's the deal. All along these sacrifices that we've been taught, that we talk about and that we read about and that are so weird and out of our element, it was already done. They were pictures of what Jesus was coming to do. They were uh, object lessons. They were constantly day in and day out and day in and day out and year in and year out showing these people that a sacrifice had to be made in order to make them have access to God, that their sins had to be cleansed, that that there was judgment, but that there had to be a substitute for their for their sins. Um, all sacrifice was an announcement of his sacrifice. It was an anticipation of his sacrifice, a kind of acting this out. Um, day in and day out, year after year. Those sacrifices could not remove sin, as we talked about in our lesson this week. Beautiful, be- beautiful things to think about and contemplate. But they pointed to the true lamb who was des- destined before the foundation of the world. 
He was always coming to do the will of the Father. The fact was that God had instituted blood animal sacrifice. This is Kent. This is uh, Kent Hughes. The fact was that God had instituted blood animal sacrifices. He had never been pleased with them, and did not see them as ends in themselves. He had established them as object lessons to instruct his people about the sinfulness of their hearts, his hatred of sin, the fact that sin leads to death, the need for atonement, and his delight in those whose hearts were clean and obedient and faithful. But there was nothing appealing to him in the sight of a dying animal. God had no pleasure in the moans and death throes of lambs and bulls. What he did find pleasure in was in those who offered a sacrifice with a contrite and obedient heart. This is what puts the sacrificial system in a whole different light for us. Once and for all, the eternal sacrifice was made in Christ. All along, it's been about Christ. This is why Paul says in Romans 3 that in God's divine forbearance, he passed over their former sins. So that's how these people received forgiveness, was he was able to say, I... I have passed over the sins because basically it had already happened and this is a shadow of what was to come. Um, Swan Paul says, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins during the time of animal sacrifice. God in his forbearance was passing over their sins. He was forbearing with them with the sins of his people until the one who was destined before the foundation of the world would appear and truly deal with their sins. Forgiveness was real in the Old Testament, but it was forgiveness um, kind of like on layaway. Um, in trying to, it was, it was, the sacrifices were um, kind of like zombies at the door that just won't go away and won't go away and won't go away. That is what the, that's what these sacrifices were showing the people Day in and day out, day in and day out, I'm remembering your sins. They have not been fully paid for. There is still judgment. This this animal is your substitute, but it's not complete. It's not complete. It's not complete. Um, when it says that he remembered their sins, that's not like, oh, I remember I need to go by the bank today. Remembering means they had not been dealt with. They had not either either been pardoned or punished so it was in this um it was in this constant sacrificial system that they were reminded of that um but finally in the fullness of time jesus put on this body as a baby and i don't know if you guys have this this absolutely blows my pea brain. I mean, it just blows it completely away that forever the Godhead had existed in this perfect unity, but Jesus didn't have his body here, right? I, I don't know in what, what form this was, but it was perfect and holy and eternal. So when he said, what he says in our passage that because it's written for me, I will do your will. I will go and do this. I'll go and become the sacrifice. Do you realize how huge it is that he put on a body? 
And the only reason he put on the body is so that that body could be killed. So that he would have flesh and blood and that he would be one of us. And that the eternal God, the God-man now, would, would actually become the sacrifice. So that's, that's the meaning of all of this is that Christ himself, God himself, put on the body. It's mind-boggling. And forever, now, moving forward, Christ is in his humility, in this body. That, I hope I'm right, but that changed the, um, not the essence of it, it changed the word, form yeah it it i mean it's forever it's forever changed and it's a forever humility of christ it's a forever lowering of himself it's a forever serving us it's a forever sacrificial love um as the word who is immortal and the father's son it was impossible for him to die. Okay? In this form, it was impossible for him to die. God can't die. He had to put on the body and assume the body that was capable of dying. He put on a body so that the body, he might find death and blot out our sin. So that as a human being, he might get between us and the judgment on human beings and bear it completely away from us so that it fell on him once and for all, gone. That's the reason why it was a complete, perfect, nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken away from it, because it was God himself becoming the sacrifice. Eternal, huge things that happened before this world was even formed that we can't fathom. And huge things happened here in all of eternity that is mind-boggling to us. Um, <clears throat> you talked about the fact that, that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. So his resurrection showed us that God accepted that sacrifice, that it was pleasing to him. It was complete. And so now we have the spirit. So now forever the Godhead is working for us. The Trinity is working for us. It's working with us. It's giving us full access to the throne of God. It's given us full access to everything he is, full access to the power of the risen, the risen Christ. It's amazing. Um, so we see that in our passage, the beautiful, beautiful words that God remembers our sin no more, which means, remember, it's not like I'm just... I remember I need to go by the cleaners. Remembering means it's been dealt with. It's been either punished or pardoned. And so he remembers our sins no more because they've been dealt with on the cross. So he remembers our sins no more. But what does he tell us to remember? There is a remembering. What does he tell us to remember? 
every week, what do we remember? In communion, remember, remember me. Remember me. Remember my love for you. Remember that I've taken away your sins. Remember that I've made you a child of God. Remember that you are an heir of God through what I've done for you. That is the remembering of the new covenant. Not God remembering our sins, but us remembering Christ's sacrifice for us. Now we go to the door and we listen for God's judgment. We listen for his wrath. We listen for the, the thumping of the zombie saying, it's not done, it's not done, it's not done, it's not done. We go to the door and we hear nothing. We hear no condemnation. We open the door, the darkness is gone, and heaven is at our doorstep. It's been opened for us through the blood of Christ. Um, Without the death of Christ, without this, then that is all just gross. It doesn't mean anything. It is a meaningless bloodbath. But now when we see the whole becomes the story of our life. We do not find ourselves with the same temptation that this audience had. This audience had the temptation to go back to those blood sacrifices. They just weren't sure it was all going to work and that it was working the way it was supposed to. So their temptation was to go back to the blood sacrifices and jettison Christ for that. And we may be thinking, why would they want to do that? What were they thinking? But can you imagine the insult it is for Christ, for us to not trust in his completed work on our behalf, for us to think that there's anything that we can bring to him that would impress him or appease him, that we would live in fear, that we would live not believing, not loving other people the way he's loved us, not showing mercy the way he's shown us mercy, being all... um, being ineffective because of our fears and and um so we do we leave the cross the same way that the old testament that these hearers wanted to leave the cross and go back to what was comfortable for them we have to ask ourselves um what do we so easily run back to why are we so quickly our eyes taken off of what Christ has done for us and who we are in him and what his death accomplished for us. How do we deal with our fears and how do we deal with our hurts? In what ways besides Christ do we choose to escape our guilt and try to make ourselves feel better? So where does this find us today in this passage? Um, well, it finds us exactly the same place that these, these guys were. We all stand at the same place where we have to have somebody that takes our place. We have to have that sacrificial covering. We have to have the substitute as they had the substitute. We have our, we're in the same place that God's response is the same to our worship and to our lives. He's not pleased with just words. He's not pleased with just actions. He's not pleased with all of our busyness. He's still only pleased with a broken and contrite heart. 
the love and practice of mercy and happy, wholehearted obedience. That hasn't changed. Being a living sacrifice is now what he expects. But what has changed is the perpetual offerings that they had to endure, uh, this constant reminder, Jesus once for all sacrifice has brought us into communion with God. We have access to the Holy Spirit that they could only imagine. The blood of brute animals um, could never atone for sin. They were unwilling victims. We had the willing God himself who didn't have to be tied, who didn't have to be forced, but of his own for the joy set before him endured the cross even unto death. So I'm going to not be embarrassed anymore to talk about the blood of the animals. Um, I'm not going to start shuffling my feet if some liberal talks to me that wants to say that we have a bloodthirsty, mean God of the Old Testament. Um, That's not going to scare me anymore Um, when they make a caricature of him. Christ's shame is my glory at this point. And I may even have some napkins printed like that so that it'll get the dinner conversation started. (laughs) Let's pray. Father God, these are things so far beyond, so far beyond our minds. Our hearts cannot even contain contain them. How is it that you yourself became the sacrifice? How is it that you yourself have come to us? Why did you pursue us? Why did you pass over our sins? Why, Father? We just are in awe and You have wowed us with your love. And now it makes sense. We thank you that it makes sense. We thank you that we get it through the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that our hearts have been changed. And we thank you. We thank you that there is now not death at our door, but heaven at our door. Oh, Father God, I pray that these words will help us in our motivation to love you more, to worship you, to love the people around us, and to serve you with joyful obedience as you served us with joyful obedience. It all makes sense, Father. So thank you for this, and I pray that um, you would bless the word to our heart and that we would be encouraged by it and strengthened by it. In Jesus' name, amen.